Martini Theatre on the Air is proud to present the man who would be Sherlock Holmes. instantaneous, a most devastating wound caused by a single blow. A sledgehammer, perhaps. Hello. What do we have here? It looks like a piece of skin. Yes, but not akin to the epidermal heap that lay before us now. In this part of the subterranean abode that gives refuge to Professor Moriarty and his brood of festering lower life forms is a well-stocked and very much functioning laboratory. At one side of the lab is an immense tunnel opening with a long case clock ticking away by its side. Just above it is a balcony of rotten wood that wraps around the entire lab with two stairwells on either side. Atop one stairwell is a large wooden door where several passageways line the upper tier across from the balcony's shabby handrails. And above all this, several gigantic wheels interconnect with each other like the inside workings of a fine Swiss watch. But they are frozen in time, not moving an inch as a greasy thin man in a medical frock inspects the severely decomposed body of a woman. He is Dr. Von Lied, and next to him stands his sourpuss assistant, Conrad. Moriarty approaches, and as he does so, He averts his eyes from the corpse. A little late in the game to be growing squimish, is it not, Professor? We all have our ghosts, Doctor. Ghosts and all the ilk will soon be a thing of the past. Unfortunately, the rain has wreaked havoc on all but these. A four-wheeler and by the looks of it, in support of a substantial load. Do you suspect... No. I seriously doubt that the carriage was laden with the daily departed and those that drank contrary. The professor stands next to the monster by an enormous furnace with a brood of angry crackling flames snapping within it. We need to increase the temperature, and we need those supplies. A letter. It's dealer Fleur. He threatens to pull out if he does not have the star by tomorrow night. I see that the avarice bent of our noble financier has finally bloated beyond the bow of his stomach. Very well. We shall act tonight and be done with it. And with him as well. Well, from what I can gather, there are three probable points of scientific fact, two of which I'm absolutely certain. 
and those irrefutable too are the specimen was torn from the malefactor's hand upon contact with the policeman's face and of course it is flesh dead flesh naturally now cite the point that escapes your confidence it's dead flesh and has been so for quite some time I'm sorry, he called me a what? A horse's ass, if I recall correctly. What say you, Watson? Overstepping your bounds as usual. Please, Lestrade. It was nothing personal, I assure you. A strong inclination toward the dramatic arts is solely responsible. I'm willing to let this slide, Mr. Holmes. Since the case is personal, and you seem to be letting your emotions... Emotions be damned. I warn you... If you so much as go anywhere near this case again... Watson, have you seen my tobacco? My God, I was beginning to think the man would never leave. A thick, green pea fog moistens the numerous banners swinging from the Romanesque columns of the British Museum's stone entryway. The banners prominently read, now on display, the Red Star of the Bacala. Good afternoon, sir. Good night to you as well, Mum. Good night all. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Inside, the museum staff are tightly locking up for the night, while two policemen stand next to a glass case where a large red ruby in the shape of an octagon rests within it. Was that? I don't know, but why don't you, you, go have one of those wee lookabouts you like to go have every now and then? I will, and you, you stay back here. monster approaches the caisson that shields the precious ruby from human hands. But this thing ain't human. The foul creature snatches the star and bolts, leaping like a gazelle and into the air through a window. Fifteen feet above the ground.
Mrs. Hudson had outdone herself with this Englishman's breakfast, eh, Holmes? Careful, Watson. Some of that food is actually getting into your mouth. A telegram for you, sir. Inspector Gregson, no doubt. Mr. Holmes, please. I would appreciate it if you... ...is in need of our assistance. Ghastly business, this. Is about all Dr. Watson can say as he observes the carnage that lay upon the blood-ridden floor of the British Museum. Dr. Watson! A stout bulldog of a man swiftly approaches. He is Inspector Tobias Gregson. Could you please tell Mr. Holmes that the crime was committed inside the museum and not outside? Watson, come quickly, without delay. Oh, yes, and while you're at it, why don't you bring, uh... Mm. Ah, Gregson, yes, bring him along as well. The length of one's gait can often determine one's height. Yes, but if that were the case, then this man would have to be mountainous. Yes. If indeed he is a man. Are you suggesting, Mr. Holmes, that we may be dealing with a woman? Oh, surely, Inspector. You jest. Mr. Holmes, if I were you, I would at least make some attempt on your part to keep your tongue civil. He always seems to scamper off just as I'm about to point out something of grave importance. Tell me, Watson. Do you see anything unusual amongst that common London filth? It would seem as if these two prints are of a different size. Correct. Then there are two. Incorrect. These prints match the singular stride of the ones we were just observing upon the lawn. Impossible. A cripple. Lest we forget that the common European bumblebee, laden with an overabundance of physical handicaps, for all intents and purposes, should not be able to attain the act of flight. But yet it does. With the greatest of dexterity. Now, I will return to Baker Street and consult the old index. The theft of this stone will in no doubt take a fence of the highest order. As for you, my dear Watson, your services are needed here. Be a good man and give the shattered window and glass casing that held the ruby a thorough going over, will you? Yes, of course. But what am I to be looking for? Lot and Tobear sits across from a man by the name of Jock de la Fleur, who specialises in the flamboyant and, of course, Precious stones, illegally obtained. It is absolutely exquisite. But, I'm afraid, I can no longer impart with your asking price. What are you talking about? Did we not have a deal? That was before there was so much, how you say, spilling of the blood. You see, murder in my profession, especially that of the local gendarme, significantly decreases the value of the merchandise. I'm afraid we have to, how you say, renegotiate. It's undeniable, Inspector. That flesh taken from the museum is a perfect match for the piece taken from the Yorkshire policeman's skull. You do say that with a fair amount of confidence, Doctor. I will give you that. Yes, no doubt instilled by his meddling mentor, unless we forget to buy us that... Inspector Gregson, if you don't mind. Let's get down to brass tacks, shall we? The stakes involved with this case have risen significantly from a simple grave robbing to that of international incident, the magnitude of which could cost both of you dearly. 
So, I feel it not too presumptuous on my part to surmise that we are now an Allied force. I am truly sorry, but it is how you say. Take it or leave it. Loosen your purse strings, Dulafleur. I have no time to haggle. Hard sterling only, as was discussed. But, Monsieur Tuber, I would have to transfer the funds from Paris. Then do it, and meet my man at the Defiant Rose. Nine o'clock tonight, no later. Mr. Holmes, I run a respectable establishment and I don't take kindly to scurrious rapscallions such as this showing up at my door. Watson, allow me to introduce to you Mr. Solly Archibald Green of Whitechapel. Now, I have in my hand the A-list. All the top fences in Europe are listed here. I'm sure the man we want is residing within our London walls. And the aforementioned Solly Green, a man I have personally extricated from the hangman's bridle on more than one occasion, is going to help us track that man down, are you not? Oh, I am, sir. I'll get the best the street has to offer working on it as soon as I take my leave and report back to you any suspicious goings-on. Within a rat-infested warehouse there lay a mountainous stack of swag ranging from bow ties to bicycles. And it's there that Solid Green addresses five young boys standing at attention, all of them garbed in dirty, ragged clothes with equally mucky faces. They all tightly grasp within their tiny hands a small piece of paper, while a sixth boy stands filing his nails and emitting a loud yawn. Mr. Holmes will reward you more than happily if the information proves helpful. Now get on with it. Five of the little ragamuffins scamper to the door while the six, in a top hat and tails, swaggers right by and immensely disgusted, Solly Green. And that handsome lad's name would be... Wiggins. Now listen carefully, boy. Mr. Holmes told me to give it to the best of the best. Would the best of the best happen to be me, your lordship? You know damn well it's... Just see to it, lad, with your usual finesse, if you please. I always endeavour to give satisfaction, Gov. Even when I'm dealing with the likes of you.
And so it would seem that within these walls of rock and mud that the aging professor and his band of mirthless men call home, there is no lack of realms. In this one we find it done up like a lord's manor, complete with bookshelves, cosy armchairs and a blazing fire. Here we find Von Lai, carefully scrutinising two pieces of paper through a stained monocle with his usual puckered brow. Lawton Tilbert sits directly across from him, nervously watching his every move. Moriarty and the monster reside by a cabinet, solely devoted to several liquidy-filled jars. All but one containing the most prominent member of the human anatomy, that being the brain. The jar, unlike the others, is full to the brim, with human eyeballs. Off in a corner sits the shaved gorilla known as Bungie, by his side, doing their best not to look anywhere near the monster, are two scrawny goons by the name of Stockdale and the ever toothless Dixie. The amount is pitiful, but the corners that will be cut shall not hinder my success. Very well then. After the drop, Bungie will remain in London. In the morning he'll go to the medical supply office and pay off our debts. And if I refuse... Bungie's rotted teeth are laid bare, as all within look upon him with a speck of venom. I mean to say, I've become somewhat indispensable like, haven't I? It's not like you can be sending out that smelly beast, can you? As for Stockdale and Dixie, a rope dangles from every streetlight in London for them two. They won't... What are you asking for? Money. My rate's gone up. So you either meet with me new terms, or... <laughs> monster is upon Bungie like the hound upon the fox. It's gargantuan hand, wrapping around a cocky hooligan's neck like it was skin on sausage. Lifting him up from the ground to come face to face, eyeball to eyeball with the monster's scarf-laden visage. With his free hand, the monster reaches up and pulls the scarf from his face. Revealing that face to be nothing more than a skull with a thin layer of sallow skin stretched over it, crisscrossed by a manifold of stitchery. Its cheekbones protrude over a pair of black, twisted lips that barely cover a set of knotted yellowy-green teeth. His eyes, a mass of angry red veins, then softens in what would seem to be the makings of a gentleman striving to regain his composure after losing a large wager he could not afford. The monster's lips, or lack thereof, curl into what would seem to be a playful smile. And with it, the monster speaks. I'm going to give you a choice, Tanji. You either do as you are told, or I will personally tear you to pieces, limb from limb. And in doing so, I shall save your head for last, while your heart still beats within you.
Martini Theatre on the air would like to extend our warmest regards to you, our most sincere listener, for tuning in this evening. We would also like to take this moment to thank the Martini Theatre players whose tireless effort and patience made tonight's broadcast possible. They are as follows. The Dislayed, Victoria Turner, Kerry Lynn Weber, Toby Williams, Michael Northergut, Jim Dana Tall, Timothy James Walsh, Stephen West, D.C. McCauley, Elmer V. Jackson, Robert Romeo Coates, Charles Waterman, and J.D. Booth. Martini Theatre would also like to thank Brian Conwell for his melodious introduction. The Man Who Would Be Sherlock Holmes was written and dramatized by Walter Barclay Campbell based upon the award-winning screenplay of the same name. Until next week, this is M-T-O-T-A signing off.